Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Tenakoto Katoa, welcome to Circuit Cast, a discussion on moving image and art from Aotearoa and beyond. Well, this month, uh, our first section of our show is recorded live here at the Adam Auditorium City Gallery, Wellington, where we bravely or foolishly have assembled to critique the exhibition or installation in the room next door, William Kendridge's The Refusal of Time. Will City Gallery have us back? We shall see. Um, for those of us here at City Gallery, you can uh, tune into the podcast through the Circuit website and hear parts two and three of this month's podcast, where we talk to Simon Denny about his show at the Adam Art Gallery, The Personal Effects of Kim.com, and the, in the first of a new series on New Zealand's artist-run spaces, we chat with Henry Davidson of Auckland's Glory and Night. That's coming up on the show. But first, here in our live section at City Gallery tonight, uh, as part of um, Open Late, we have our critical panel. And with me tonight, uh, I have Thomason Slay, a writer and critic who's just published her first novel, or at least recently, Ad Lib. Kia ora to you, Thomason. Kia ora, Kia ora everyone. And also here, Martin Patrick, uh, writer, academic, based at Massey University. Kia ora to you, Martin. Hi, Mark. Right, we also have a live audience, and I'd like you guys to give out a bit of a shout for the folks at home so they know that we're actually not just talking to ourselves. <laughs> Could I have a big kia ora from the audience? Thank you. Yeah. Ah, that's very, very unreserved. Very good, very good. Well, okay, welcome. Kia ora to you. Right, the refusal of time. South African artist William Kendridge, originally commissioned for Documenta 13 in Kassel in Germany uh, in 2012. It's an ambitious installation with a raft of collaborators. Uh, it mixes sculpture, a soundscape, a 30-minute five-channel video work which itself incorporates drawing, theatre, music and dance, you, you name it really. It's been the result of discussions between Kendridge and a professor in science and physics, Peter Gallison, and it might be considered something of a creative lecture on the historical shifts in our grasp on time as a material, ranging from black holes to string theory to Einstein. Unlike a lot of contemporary art I'm seeing here and elsewhere, which is cool, calm and collected, this work feels like it's got quite a raggedy heart it's coming from quite a personal place. Really, when you walked out of the chaos of that room, because there was a lot in the air, what, what stayed with you? Yeah, I can actually remember, Mark, because I'd been to see the show just before we recorded the last podcast, and <laughs> you asked me what I had thought of the show, and I just kind of looked at you with this glazed expression, because <laughs> I was totally overwhelmed. Um, it's worth noting for those listeners who haven't seen the work yet that there's just an awful lot going on um, not only in the media and the different uh, kind of art forms that are at play but also um, the kind of themes that are woven into the work so the big idea of the de this depiction of time which in itself is a huge uh, huge topic to, to think about and that's references and moves on to kind of life and death these are like very big things there's the kind of post-colonial post-apartheid reading a history of film and images. It took me quite a long time in answer to your question to kind of process a lot of these, a lot of these very big, big ideas. For me, the it, it, it's quite chaotic and, and deliberately so. It's self-consciously yeah. chaotic, and uh, it's a way. It's almost akin to the artist's studio, which uh, you, you see marks on the floor, painted marks that suggest the artist's studio. And I felt like I was almost in the artist's head. As I said, it felt like a like a scrapbook. But I, I didn't know whether that for me was a very effective place to kind of consider 
time. I, I, I don't know if I came out of there really with any one of those strands really pushing me and changing me and making me think further. Well, I think it's important to note that uh, William Kentridge's background is in theatre and drama, and not that that's a problem in and of itself, but I think he's a very theatrical artist. He, he tends towards the spectacular. He tends towards the um, symbols that are kind of broad brush and very heavily um, orchestrated. I tried to go into this with a fairly open mind because I haven't been a big fan of Kentridge's work in the past. And I must say it kind of drew me in with its, um, it wasn't unpleasant at all to watch, but at the same time to go into an exhibition uh, ostensibly about dealing with temporality and time. There's so many different ways artists are dealing with temporality these days to come in and, and see like multiple projections of out-of-sync metronomes I think seemed really heavy-handed and I felt that I was kind of being very often sort of bludgeoned by metaphors and symbols and I feel that quite consistently throughout some of his work even though I feel that this is quite a departure from in some respects from some of his earlier um, hand-drawn animations. Yeah, I think I disagree with that that notion of it being spectacular. Like, I actually think that quite sort of there's a lot of quite low-fi stuff going on. And something something that I read talked about how there's there's that scene where all the uh, the characters are kind of blowing up various um, sites of of time being constructed essentially. So the you know in Greenwich and yada yada. He, he talked about those, those scenes actually being put together very rapidly, so they actually filmed them all like within a day. And I think it kind of undercuts a little bit of that spectacularness. It does feel kind of constructed uh, and sort of handmade in a way that's not sort of overblown. Yeah, but kind of schizophrenic. Like a, a, there's a, a, to me, it's like he didn't, couldn't get out of the collaboration and the whirl of ideas to kind of get a sense to orchestrate it properly and give it a, a, full, a fuller shape that really I felt satisfied with coming out of. I don't think it's the role of art to, to, to tell us things or, or to be a storyteller or a, a lecturer, but I, I do need to be kind of shifted and I, and I just felt like I was caught in his world really. One of the qualms that I had with it was um, uh, the kind of spoken word that comes out of the megaphones. I sort of got the sense that if I could just hold on to that, I could hold on to something quite central to the work, but because it's quite trebly, I couldn't really hear it and it just frustrated me. But I think the, the artist's intention is that if you go closer to those megaphones, you can see, yeah, hear it clearly feel, directionally, but the seats are sort of, yeah, did you feel like don't you kind of invite that? you to do that. No, I So I didn't do that, and then I felt that it was kind of this strange thing that, that I know some of my students probably go through at times of this murmuring voice going on, and you're not quite <laughs> following every bit of it, but I felt that, um, I liked a lot of the, I mean, I'm sort of uh, critiquing his theatrical nature, but sometimes yeah. I think it works quite nicely, like the sort of staging of these early 20th century scientific uh, developments. But at the same time, I felt in reading more about the work, I kind of got really interested in reading about it and about its inspirations, but less interested in what had actually gone on in the gallery. And it was sort of like, Several people took issue, and I think you did a little bit, Mark, with Simon Starling's exhibition and the amount of backstory that each piece sort of had historically. But I think Starling's work was very rich in its implications and, and the way it responded and manipulated these histories within his own practice. Whereas Kentridge, I, you know, I, I feel it, it was a little bit like watching some aspects of maybe a television doco on, on science or something, but with these, you know, very bold... Um, 
uh, kind of surround sound effects and a lot of affectation, I think. I'd like to pick up on this point, which is this kind of mix of cinema and theatre and, and different disciplines. The seats are fixed, but at odd angles, which in itself is a really interesting thing to do. It's a work that runs for a certain length of time. It does have a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered whether it would have been stronger as a piece of live theatre. Mm, and he has worked on restaging of operas and has a background in theatre, so he's obviously really engaged with that whole kind of discourse. But yeah, I think that it was very carefully constructed in acts as well. It had certain sort of discrete beginnings and ends of different periods, so the editing was very carefully focused on creating a kind of a point around a particular act, which I think I think it was a bit more constructed than you're giving it credit for, I think is my point. Well, I think yeah. it's, it, it's, you know, uh, extremely uh, well constructed, but also quite pedantic and heavy-handed at times. Like if we're sort of attracted to the fact that things are fragmented and falling apart, we actually see a collage kind of falling apart and, and restructuring, or you have, you know, drawings that are, you know, erased and then redrawn, or if, if the world is kind of topsy-turvy because of the colonialist gaze, then you have pictures that are topsy-turvy and upside down. But notwithstanding, I mean, I think a lot of the actors in it, the music was very well done, the, uh, and the roles played in it and everything, but it, it just kind of seemed to me as if everything was so much about effect and not affect in a sense. It kind of, okay. once I, I left, I didn't really feel as if it sort of congealed into some kind of resonant experience. Gosh, I'd hate to hear what you say about the kindred works you don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the elephant in the room, as it were. Um, Literally, uh, a large wooden kinetic sculpture that Kendridge describes as an elephant at one point, or a breathing machine. I've described it in a review I've just written as a a wooden loom-like mechanism, all well-oiled and carpented pistons and axles that quietly swooshes wooden cage lungs backwards and forwards. Kendridge's description of it as an elephant comes from Charles Dickens' Hard Times, where Dickens talks about the industrial machine in the 19th century as like the movement of the head of an elephant in a state of melancholy madness. It was inspired by two things. Firstly, there was a 19th century scheme in Paris, and I think Vienna, to pump air from a sort of a bellowing mother clock through pipes underground to regulate clocks around the city. So a a materialisation of time through, through air. Secondly, there was a Joseph Boy's work in Castle at a previous documenta, remembering that this work was commissioned for documenta, where Boy's famously pumped honey around the city as part of his free international university, as a sort of a, a nod to generating social cohesion. You're mentioning so many interesting things, Mark, that actually are only peripherally related to Kentridge's actual piece. I mean, they're kind of, uh, you know, like deeper or once removed backstory and at times when I was in... But he in actually the... mentions that, per, sorry, Parisian clock in the film as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, there, so I mean, there, there are some point. references, but it's still like, oh, I'm not sure about... I mean, uh, Kentridge, one thing he said in interviews that he thinks he wants to make, um, that artists make something that's invisible uh, or not uh, uh, readily apparent visible. But I think often when he does that, he stages it in such broad terms. I guess what I found the most interesting at times were some of the video projections in which the overlaying of materials and the kind of density of information did approach, I think maybe recalled sort of the aesthetics of maybe some of Peter Greenaway's films or these sorts of things where you kind of have text and image and a kind of cacophony that's going on. 
it did draw me into the notion of early 20th century science as a fantastic place to visit, but you know, there's been a lot of writing about that related to say Marcel Duchamp's work, which drew a lot on the sort of mix between occult and metaphysics and science of, of the turn of the 20th century. It's a pretty fascinating array of materials. So I was more fascinated reading, I think, Gallison and Kentridge in conversation than mm. sort of viewing the exhibition itself. Mm. It does, just we've made that kind of uh, slight connection to the, the sort of Simon Starling installation as well, and it did have me thinking of, um, I've forgotten the name of the work now, but Wilhelm Hoek or something like that, which is the, you know, the, the film on the repetitive kind of reel with the, the yes. screen in front of it. So it was kind of the same, very similar sort of construction in terms of a physical, a large physical object surrounded by a large filmic uh, project, projection. But I, I, the sounds kind of inane, but just the sound was something that it, I felt like it really needed to, to make some sort of noise um, to manifest that idea of time passing or something like that. One thing we haven't spoken about is the, the post-apartheid context for the work. And other than Kendridge, the other performers are, are, are black Africans. And it just struck me today, watching it, that this title, The Refusal of Time, is all, it almost felt like Black Africa's refusal of time. I mean, there is a narrative there where you watch the performers actually detonate and, and blow up the clock, as it were, and then go into this kind of death march, to, you know, marching towards a black hole at the end. There is this kind of a narrative there, which is actually about a rebellion. Well, it's certainly one of the most important subtexts to, to, and, and foregrounded texts in, in Kentridge's work, and it would be also uh, the refusal of this colonialist Western time systems, which of course, or, or the kind of mapping of kind of grid systems on, like we see this in Wellington, right? This, the streets mapped, you know, thousands of kilometers away from this yes, location, yes. and it's not quite meeting up. I really didn't think it should be called the refusal of time. Like you had this idea of it being a kind of destructive, destructive end or a sort of reconstruction of this post-colonial sort of structure that's been imposed. But it felt to me like an expansion or, a, or it's sort of almost celebratory at certain, that sort of dance macabre images. And yeah, it didn't feel like a refusal or an end point. I'm not sure if we've got time for any discussion or if, if, if we've got any great Kendridge supporters here who'd like to rebut. <laughs> Have we got some time? Yeah. Yes. Speaking as making up the elephant with the white South African in the room, just the <laughs> elephant, I guess. Um, and your comments about bludgeoning and pedantic really struck me because knowing, I guess, my people, whatever you call them, as I do, that's, that's kind of characteristic, I suppose. I think maybe rather than a kind of post-apartheid reading, reading William Kentridge as a white South African, which is a very strange thing and kind of place and you know temporal position to be and and in he embodies so many of the contradictions to that identity um like you know cosmopolitan yet parochial kind of arrogant yet insecure and i think maybe that's a more helpful mm. reading of his work is to kind of personalize it in terms of that kind of white south african johannesburg person um mm. you know, to, to me seeing the work it just seemed Kind of oddly familiar. It seemed like being, you know, arrogant white South African men telling me what I should think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, curiously, yeah. I, I will say that I've spoken about the show with other people who've seen it who are not South African who have said similar things about it's like a 
uh, a white man telling me what I should think. What you say is like very, very, very interesting. In well, think of extrapolating it into a New Zealand yeah. context yeah. Or, or for a Pākehā in terms of talking about Māori, Aotearoa, it kind of is a... It's, you just wouldn't go there, would you? I don't think. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, everyone. I think we've run out of time this, this evening, and we'll see you outside. Feel free to, to uh, buy us a beer. Part two of our podcast, Circuit Cast, and we're at Adam Art Gallery today uh, on install day, just before the opening of Simon Denny's show, The Personal Effects of Kim.com. And we've got Simon here. Kia ora, Simon. Welcome. Kia ora. Welcome back to New Zealand. Thank you. You've been based in Berlin a long time now. Yeah, seven years in Berlin. Oh no, five years in Berlin, seven years in Germany. Yeah, a couple of years in Frankfurt before then. You, this show that we're seeing here actually um, opened first in Vienna. Was Correct. It, was it a commission there? No, it was, um, so I, yeah, it's, it's kind of a protracted story, but to start at the beginning, uh, I, was, I presented uh, a statements booth at Art Basel in 2012 and, uh, with Michael Lett. Um, and we won this kind of competition they do every year in that, and part of the winnings of that was to get a show at the Moomok in Vienna. So that's where the kind of ideas, like what an opportunity for an exhibition started. And around that time, uh, obviously, the, the kind of Kim thing was in my mind uh, because it was kind of all over the papers. And um, so, yeah, I got in touch with the curator there, uh, Matthias Michalka, and he seemed to think it was a great idea to start a project based on that. So we, that's where it all began. So it was all over the papers in Germany? Well, it was, I think it was heavily, much more heavily in the papers here, but it was yeah. all over the, like, it was definitely all over the news. I mean, I, I came across the whole saga because I was using mega video to watch TV. Like, uh, you know, I live in Germany yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. they dub all of the international uh, programs there. So you can't watch like English speaking TV. Um, and I like to keep up with my whatever soaps. And um, yeah, so I was often streaming. Yeah. And uh, then all of a sudden couldn't stream on that service anymore. <laughs> and then, yeah, I went to the Facebook feed and, you know, Herald articles, but also like t I read a lot of tech news and obviously Kim's kind of like you know, part of the tech community as well, right? He's an entrepreneur, tech right. entrepreneur. Right. So, like, that community was pretty interested in the story as well. And then it took place in my hometown. I was like, well, that's, that's a whole lot of interesting things all at once, you know? Well, speaking of home, was it important for the, you for the show to come to New Zealand? Or Yeah, it yeah. was. And, like, it was kind of conceived... Uh, I mean, we knew it was coming here before the first show opened. So, I, you know, and I knew it would have a few stops. I didn't know we'd be going to Colchester at that stage, but it was on the cards, so... Um, yeah, the fact that it had a number of different presentations was important, and the fact that we could do a presentation right in Wellington uh, was something that I really wanted to play with as well. Yeah, because you haven't shown much in Wellington before, have you? I'm I had an exhibition at Enjoy about a decade ago <laughs> yeah. with Tahi Moore, and yeah, right. that's kind of it, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, when I was still a student at Auckland. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, no, that's really good. Hey, well, I mean, we're looking at a lot of stuff here. Right. Right. As, as you might affect. We've got a lot of objects, but then of course we've got a lot of visual representations of uh, bank accounts of a significant number that were confiscated, uh, or at least uh, taken over, I guess, in 2012. Yeah. Um, seized, I think is the word. Seized. Yeah. And um, yeah, Tina Barton was saying in a, in a statement about the show that 
that she was interested in this kind of fact that you were, in a sense, trying to show us the, well, play with the logic of the internet, the structure of the internet in some way with mm. the exhibition design or the presentation. I was interested whether you could kind of expand on that a little. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things that came up for me when I first saw the list that the show was based on, right, is like, uh, what does this group of objects mean? You know, what, or what does kind of seeing this list of this group of objects mean? And uh, scale was something that came to mind pretty quickly. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, obviously, 60 bank accounts, 25 luxury vehicles, uh, you know, a, a, a small collection of artworks. How much currency, U.S. currency was that? 175 million in U.S. currency. <laughs> and, and cold hard cash. That's what it says. Yeah, here we're standing beside We're standing right behind it, yeah. Actually. There yeah. it is, there. See, so uh, yeah. that's the exact wording on the indictment document. So, yeah, basically, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a bulk of stuff, right? And Kim is a kind of big figure anyhow. He's larger than life. He's a large guy. Whatever, all of these things came together. And so mass was, first of all, pretty important uh, in the way that I tried to frame the presentation of the objects and also resolution was something that kind of came to mind yeah. pretty quickly and which is close to scale right so if you think about what Kim is was kind of accused of is accused of is facilitating you know the distribution of um, you know copyrighted material right you know from watching this material sometimes you get the really JPEGy one uh, sometimes you get the beautiful HD picture and I think something about that I wanted to uh, re reference in the way that the material came across yeah. also like um, you know the fact that we're working with a list of things sees things but we're not actually we haven't got any of his actual sees things so there's often stand-ins versions of these are the kind of uh, tools that I wanted to use in the kind of exhibition language. So you get miniatures for a car, but you get also in some of the presentations we were able to get the actual same model, size, color, everything. So you got something from a very, what I would call HD representation of these objects right down to a kind of very uh, JPEGy, lossy kind of version of them. One of the things that kind of brings, you know, to fold out of a formal language and back into a kind of issues-based discussion uh, I think you know wealth is a big thing in the background of this whole discussion, and yeah. uh, trying to put together a multi-million-dollar seizure uh, with an exhibition budget on the scale of what we're working with is uh, is something that I think speaks to some <laughs> of the most important issues uh, that have been brought up by the whole thing. Right? This is wealthy men, uh, you know, taking uh, space on our stage. Right? This, this, this is, is supposedly a, a public gallery. Right. It's a public gallery public issues, yeah. uh, that deals with public issues, uh -huh. but also in terms of what Kim's come to represent in New Zealand and the, you know. Obviously, his story has changed a lot um, over uh, people's perception of him, as I understand it, has changed quite a lot from 2012 until this moment now. Mm. And one of the kind of heated moments more recently was around the election. And, uh, mm. you know, for me, uh, uh, it was interesting to think about, you know, what it meant for kind of, you know, wealthy men to be on the stage, you know, and I think, you know, uh, value is one of the things that brought together this collection of stuff anyway, you know, it's the, mm. the reason why you seize these assets is because they're worth a lot of money. In some ways, he's quite an obvious target, though, at least he puts himself out there in a way, rather than the patronage which sits behind. In the, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Kim is a very complicated symbol, you know, yeah. and I mean, I'm kind of less interested in him than I am in the kind of stories and the issues that kind of uh, he acts as a kind of a node for, but... But, um, yeah, I mean, I think th there's definitely sides of Kim which are extremely generous. Having there said are... that, do you think there's a role... Are you, are you passionate about a, a certain role that art plays in the discussion that is happening in New Zealand around .com? Yes, yes, what, definitely. What, what, what is that for you? I mean, what do you hope this, this show would achieve in that? I think, uh, I think a lot of these um, highly politicised issues that kind of uh, enter into the discussion around Kim, uh, you know, are framed around sensation, are framed around kind of... Uh, yeah, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
the way he's represented in different media is always um, cast by where that media is coming from, right? right? And I think that if you put a bulk of this kind of more concrete stuff, you kind of try and think about these, this group of things as a sort of symbol for it, that's a very different way to start thinking about the discussion and I think uh, is a different way to kind of foreground other issues, you know, like yeah. about ownership, about stuff, about what it means to kind of uh, distribute and have to own, to, uh, to display, uh, I mean, I think, I think these things are something that the arts are very good at. And, um, and I think also the arts have a really great position of um, being able to comment on things uh, in a very considered way, right? So, you know, you don't yeah. ha I don't have to necessarily consider uh, a large viewership in a public gallery like this. I mean, obviously, I think this show can read very well to a, a number of different people with a number of different interests, and that's something I'm really interested in. But you can also be very careful and very clear, um, whereas often if you have to collaborate with different kind of media outlets, uh, there's a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot of things baggage which comes with those things, right? Yeah. So for me, this is my craft. Uh, I know how to make an exhibition. I know the language of exhibitions to a certain extent, and uh, I think I can present something that is quite nuanced and considered, right? A, a more, more of a cultural reflection of what's going on, rather than like a kind of um, car chase. Do you know what I mean? So you think the work, in a sense, is a reflection on the, the, the increasing limitations on the media? Because I mean, it's, that's that's one of the big issues of our time, really, is how how the media is. Well, as we saw with the dirty politics scandal, is the obvious one how how our media landscape is being so butchered or manipulated. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was really interested in uh, starting starting the project right way back in 2012, uh, one of the first things I did, in fact, the first thing I did was ask my father to collect the Herald articles, all the Herald articles that mentioned uh, Kim. So actually, the first idea was to make a book of all the Herald articles. Right. And, uh, but then I thought, actually, there's more potential in this uh, than, than just the format of a straightforward book. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I started to think, like, as, as a proposition for a sculpture, that list was something really engaging. You know, like, what does that list of stuff look like? What does it feel like? You know, it's, uh, and I liked the idea of these two collections meeting as well. So on the one hand, the list, right, is something that is of Kim, right? It's a collection that he's chosen. It's a group of things, objects that he owns. But on the other hand, if you think about it as a kind of a Venn diagram, as a sort of the meeting point as a subset of another kind of decision-making process is the legal process, right? The mm -hmm. US legal process. And, uh, and so that it's kind of a subset of those two systems, right? Mm. So I thought that is an interesting proposition for a sculpture and, and for, uh, for feeling for a visualization experience, let's say. And, uh, and then I started to get the idea, oh, well, so what could stand in for these things? You know, how could I represent these things? Okay, there's easily definitely what we want to do is see a picture of all these objects. That's one thing you want to see. You want to see, you want to see what all these cars look like. You want to see what these bank accounts look like. You know? uh, but you also want to, uh, you know, I also, things that could be objects, like, like the artworks, obviously, we then started borrowing from, from the artists. So we contacted Colin Christian, we contacted Olaf Muller, and uh, they lent work from, from their own You've collection. You've got a Michael Paracolfi upstairs, is that right? Right, we've got a Paracolfi as well, and that's interesting too, because one of the great things about the list, or one of the interesting things for me, and also kind of sculpturally, right, and exhibition making, one of the cool things is some of the things are very, very clear, right? You have the model number, the import number, other things on the list are kind of unclear. So uh -huh. one, 
One thing is like a hooded, anonymous hooded sculpture is one of the things on the list. And, ah. uh, and the Patakofi stands in for a fiberglass sculpture. And that's been different, that's been different artists and different exhibitions. So in, ah. uh, in Colchester, we had a Murakami that we borrowed from a collection in London. From the Mumok, of course, they have a collection. So we, just, we pulled something out from Eric Van Lieshout uh, for that show. So it was, uh, it was also about filling in the less defined things. And that's where you can do some kind of creative thinking on it. So I think what's great about the Michael Patakofi piece is it also brings, you know, brings for the, some of the issues around how Kim has interfaced with, uh, with Māori as a cultural force in New Zealand. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, uh, Michael's a very interesting artist for a number of reasons, but he speaks very well to these issues of how Māori sit in contemporary culture mm. in New Zealand. And I think to kind of bring the body of the bodyguard uh, from Kapahaka into conversation with the Colin Christian mask, mm. with the predator statue, uh, with the kind of anonymous hooded sculpture downstairs. Uh, I think these things, uh, you start to be able to access these kinds of conversations from, you know? It's very nice. Where does this, where does this work, this in, the installation fit within the rest of your practice? It's a very big, broad question, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in your answer. Well, I mean, I've always been interested, well, always, I've recently been interested in, uh, in technology, in the way that technology uh, and uh, you know, changes in communication technology uh, basically impact on our lives. That's kind of a central question to my interests. And I've tried to make hardware stand in for these kind of conversations. So like having objects and images stand in for ideas around the way that uh, communication technology changes the world uh, is something. So that definitely fits into this as it does into other projects. Generally, entrepreneurial culture, you know, uh, I've been really interested in the startup world. I've done a number of projects right. based on the startup context and the rhetoric coming out of Silicon Valley and uh, spreading around the planet. And I think, you know, Kim is an, he's some kind of outpost of that as well. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a very successful entrepreneur and, uh, and a very able tech guy who comes from a hacker background, you know. So uh, that's something that kind of fits into the broad range of my practice as well. And other things, you know, that come around that, like, you know, general things that pretty much everybody's interested in now you know, privacy, access, these kind of things, uh, they've played a big part in what I've uh, been looking at too, simply because they affect this kind of, yeah, the, the takeover basically of the logic of uh, global network communication systems, right? Which yeah. is, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, other things as well, like sovereignty. You know, I, I made a, I made a uh, presentation in 2012 that kind of kick-started the opportunity to make this project at Basel about the New Zealand passport redesign. So it's about yes. also about like how design yes. and how sovereignty uh, interacts with design and how images represent countries. And, uh, you know, these are all things that I find really interesting too. And I think Kim has been this amazingly polarizing figure here in terms of our home, right? In terms of mm. New Zealand. Like, does an outsider have the right to speak, uh, the right to insert himself into our politics? These mm. kind of questions, which I think sometimes border on some pretty difficult territory uh, for people. You know, as I say, I've tried very hard to make each presentation really, you know, responsive to the context, right? And, and I, think, uh, I think the New Zealand presentation has had a number of differences from the other two, you know? Uh, and one of those is how I treated the Herald. And the others, you know, the others are, for example, making the collaboration with the Cut Collective. Uh, so there's a group of graffiti artists who uh, I worked with who, who made a... Um, a beautiful mural in Kim's gaming room uh, before the raid, right? So Kim's an avid right. gamer, as we know. And they made this amazing, like, uh, portrait of him and Mona, and, like, uh, it had a number of um, 
yeah, like uh, other kind of characters in it, cars and like dudes from maybe Call of Duty or whatever, uh, which Kim's very good at, and um, and to work with them on situating the material here, you know, as a kind of artistic voice, as a cultural voice that's engaged with Kim as a figure pre-raid, I think was a really interesting thing for me to do as well. That wasn't confiscated though, was it? It wasn't. No, but I mean, I kind of you know bringing the work home, bringing the work to the local territory. I think mm. I wanted to bring other voices in right from the beginning. There's been so the list has been the kind of frame, but there has been extraneous material a couple of times, like the Herald articles, right? That they're, they're you know, nobody confiscated the Herald, yeah, uh, but also like yeah. the Heston's bed that was a support for the Colin Christian sculpture in the first uh, presentation. And I think Heston's is a pretty interesting brand to work with in terms of Kim. Um, um, why, why is that? Because is that the video? There's a video in the other room. There's a video there, there and there's a corner of a Heston's bed there, mm -hmm. uh, which is a promotional item that Heston's work with. So they're a, they're a Swedish, absolutely top high end bed producer. They're, they're some of the most uh, high quality beds you can get on the on the planet, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, they're they're quite pricey things. And um, and that video talks about uh, the absolute high end materials they use. Uh, the great sleep you get with such a quality investment for beds. And You're doing a good investment right now. Well, they've yeah. been very generous to the show. You know. <laughs> uh, they've supported the show. I mean, a number of brands have worked with us over the different uh, <laughs> exhibitions of the show. And uh, yeah, Toyota and Heston's were some of the people that were, were, were up for it this time. Wow. You know? There's been yeah. different brands up for it at different times okay. and in different places. And that's pretty interesting as well. Because, uh, hmm. you know, to start off with, Mercedes and, uh, and, 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 uh, and Mini, which was BMW, uh, were, were, you know, were very interested and supportive in, uh, in Colchester, were not so interested here in Wellington. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. Like a watch brand that Kim was close to, this Devon brand, which is a brand from the um, LA. They gave us beautiful kind of eighty thousand dollar watches for the first couple of shows. This time they were less interested in being involved. You know, it's kind of uh, I think I think Kim's story. Uh, people come and go from it. You know, it's ironic. ironic this show is the blingiest, most retail show I've ever seen at the Adam Art Gallery. You know, I think that was a great brand thing, <laughs> and I think Tina's very intelligent in the way that she cast the show. You know, and, and the fact that she. I mean, it's also the maybe maybe one of the last places you might expect to see, uh, let's say, spray murals. Yeah. I think I don't think that's been done here before on the wall. Well, exactly. So I think yeah. uh, these languages you bring to things. I mean, yeah, one of the things. I guess closer to our art conversation is uh, is about what goes in a museum and what is collectible and what is right to go in a museum. And certainly, the Mumok uh, was is a collecting museum. They collected a part of my piece, and there were some other artworks that were kind of folded into that, which may or may not have been uh, part of their interest to collect otherwise. You know, so I think this kind of I, mean, I don't think taste is the right issue, but in terms of like what we value and the type of cultural production we value, mm. I think this is one of the uh, other kind of cultural messages that the Kim story brings because some people are kind of like oh like a crazy predator statue that's uh, you know they wouldn't they wouldn't associate that with the kind of art that I've been trained in uh, how would you describe as aesthetic I would describe it as a kind of cross between two pretty clear positions actually is uh, gaming right so he's uh, very close to gaming culture and also entrepreneurial culture so I was just for example reading a uh, Ben Horowitz uh, he's a he's a famous VC uh, from from Silicon Valley you know, right throughout Silicon Valley, uh, graffiti art is, is a huge, uh, huge part of that. So Facebook, they get resident graffiti artists into paint murals all the time. Like it's a, it's a, it's an aesthetic they're close to. So mm. that's an interesting thing. I think I think Kim's close to that. I think Kim's definitely close to gaming culture. That's uh, you know the kind of bling aspect comes from that, as as far as I can read it. Um, mm. So uh, yeah, and some of the kind of more. Um, 
let's say, male-centered politics, which is also a part of his representational schema, hmm. uh, is also, I think, probably uh, yeah. located from that zone. Hey, should we go through the Kirk Gallery and just um, do that. Yep. have a look around? Like a, well, it's a server room in a sense, or is it? Yeah, like kind a, of. And the gaming room as yeah, well. Yeah, server, that? gaming room, exactly. Some kind of, I mean, uh, you know, we all know that story of the raid, right? With New Zealand, it's kind of folklore now, but it's, uh, you know, there was this bunker that he kind of shut himself in at one point uh, late, in, late in the day, and, uh, and I kind of wanted to get a bunkery feeling in one of the rooms in the show, and this is it. I mean, it's usually a video room, so it's, it's painted black normally, right? Well, normally, what it is, is often the usage it gets. Absolutely. It's actually got a hum to it, which yes. is pretty interesting. Yes. And so putting a bunch of servers in here and some of the more, um, yeah, the, the bigger excerpts from the graphic uh, components from the murals that I wanted to make uh, interact with the, the labeling system, that, that happened on the most extreme scale here, I think. How have you found the gallery architecture to work with? Because it's a, it's a challenging space, but in some ways a really interesting space, depending on who, who the artist is. Yeah, I mean, for me, this type of space is a gift. You know, I, I love to have uh, unconventional, quote-unquote, uh, gallery architecture to work with and non-gallery-esque non spaces. Uh, you know, I find a, a straight-up white cube one of the hardest things to activate, actually. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I've hung canvases here in kind of every nook and cranny of the entire space, from the bathrooms to the hallways to the elevator. Uh, and, and that system, to have a kind of clear system penetrate all sorts of different types of spaces has been a part of framing the show, which I think is a pretty important to how it reads, you know? And you've got this kind of sleek industrial aesthetic, which probably isn't too far from something I'd imagine Kim.com would like in a Potentially, gallery. yeah. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of branding involved in the show. I mean, uh, you know, part of the representation of the bank accounts, uh, I mean, you really get a sense of them. There's uh, 60 bank logos in the, in, in, you know, at, a, at scale in this presentation. And I think, uh, I think a kind of corporate foyer moments that come through are, are very appropriate to that, you know. Let's move out where we can get a Yeah, it's kind of loud on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's almost a resemblance of a board game right. going on, right? right. If you, 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 you could imagine someone picking up this as, a, as an idea from your show and creating, you know, the Kim.com game. Gaming. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's that. I, I understand. Congratulations on all. You've got a big survey show in New York coming up. Yeah, so um, I mean, uh, big maybe, maybe not, but uh, it's uh, I've got a, I've got a survey show, a little little survey show at the at MoMA PS1. So oh, we, we just like a little one, even thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty happy to be working there, and uh, Peter Ely is a really great curator who has had a long conversation with. So it's nice to finally end up doing something with him. And congratulations on getting into the MoMA collection. I understand. Which is yeah, great. that sort of somehow was part of the same movement, you know. So yeah. so it was great. Yeah, that's, great that's brilliant, Simon. Well, the show's here until I think mid December, just before Christmas. So plenty of time. Plenty of time for people to get to see it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on CircuitCast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your great questions. Thank you. Well, in the new series here in the pod, we take a look at the culture of artist-run spaces in New Zealand. Beyond the dealers and the public galleries, artists are continuing to create their own projects and come together to exhibit their work. But what role are they playing in the wider arts ecology? 
In 20 years, how have they changed? And is the handle Artist Run Space even relevant anymore? First in the series, we have on the line from Auckland's Gloria Knight, Henry Davidson. And Henry, ironically, I hear you're sitting at a dealer's desk today at Michael Lett Gallery. Yes, I am. That's right. <laughs> hey, well, speaking more of Gloria Knight, I wanted to ask you what led to the establishment of the gallery. I wasn't uh, myself actually involved in the establishment of the gallery. So there are four members of Gloria Knight at the moment, and I re- replace, in a way, uh, one of the members who moved overseas late last year. I guess the gallery was formed because of the desire for a space that showed perhaps a certain type of work that might not have had much of an outlet in Auckland at the time. Like a lot of artist-run spaces, the gallery was created out of just a desire to run a gallery or to have your own project space. For an artist-run space, there is a very strong sense of an aesthetic running through the exhibitions. It's obviously quite clean. There's a lot of design-led work in a way or an interest in that area. How would you describe it? Yeah, I think Gloria Knight is is really interested in a lot of practices, but in... um, kind of a certain type of practice. I think the, the work that Gloria is interested in uh, has an approach to art practice that responds to technological changes of the 21st century and I guess how these have radically changed the way we experience the world and our bodies and images and language. Well, Gloria Knight is a name. It sounds like she sounds like a bit of a glamorous girl, a kind of a I don't know high Mattonite, you know, Manhattanite wheeler and dealer. And yeah. um, I remember we seeing you guys at, looking really smart at last year's Auckland Art Fair. So I mean, you know, are you are you a, are you a dealer as well, or are you just an artist run space dressed up as one? I think we've forged a pretty unique identity, which is a combination of gallery models. We are engaging with the commercial sphere of art production, but. Well, you by mean you've definition. got work for sale, is that what, what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but by definition, we are an artist-run space, and I guess we're an artist and a curator-run space. I'm not an artist, but the other members of the gallery are. I guess some people might argue that as soon as you have an, an, a curator involved, you're no longer an artist-run space, in a, in a way. It's an interesting, yeah. interesting way to look at it. I guess so, but um, I think there are a lot of spaces similar to us that are run by, maybe not so much in New Zealand, definitely not in Auckland, but um, are run by a combination of artists and curators. I find that most of the curators I know or that are of a similar age to me are artists as well or come from a fine arts background. So, I mean, we're definitely interested in where the lines between these things blur and we're kind of models of that ourselves, I think. Well, what's what's your particular vision for the gallery, Henry? I know you've 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 been involved with. Uh, it's interesting to see your work with as as an intern at uh, Dunedin Public Art Gallery, uh, where you had a show down there uh, at the same time with a parallel show uh, at Michael Letts as well. And I'm kind mm-hmm. of interested in, in where you see Gloria Knight going. The future of Gloria Knight is probably a little uncertain at the moment. So for me, it's an opportunity to work on a project, a gallery-based project, with my peers and with artists whose work I like in a kind of a free way where we are able to do what we want, to make exhibitions the way we want. Yeah. And I guess some of my my experience so far is more institutional, so working within restraints and within certain parameters. So Gloria Knight is quite a freeing experience for me, I guess. And yeah, like I said, it's, I identify with the artists that we've worked with and 
their practices are yeah exciting for it's exciting for me to work with my peers. I that's kind of the way I see it. I guess some people say the artist-run spaces, the future of an artist-run space is always sort of uncertain. You're never quite sure what's going to happen next. Are you guys just not sure uh, whether you're going to be around next year or uh, is it a matter of moving spaces or different people le- moving on? Probably a combination. It's a combination of those things, to be honest. And, yeah, I think we all have other things going on and have had a pretty... The gallery's been... This is the, the third year of the gallery, so, yeah, we've had a good run and I think uh, because of... Issues with our space, we're sort of recons- we're, we're considering at the moment how how Gloria will continue or, or whether or not she will. I guess an artist-run space is a social phenomenon. It's a gathering of a, of, of a community. I wonder mm-hmm. if you've got any observations about who your community are or, or maybe even who your audience are or whether that really matters. I guess our audience is quite small in some ways, but I think it's pretty diverse. Obviously, a lot of our audiences are younger people art students, younger artists. That said, I mean, we're kind of established now, so a lot of people know about us, and I think, yeah, our audience is probably becoming more dynamic as we go on. We also have an online presence, obviously, like most people, and I think that our audience kind of extends via the internet and perhaps in many ways to audiences that we're not that aware of. But um, we've we've, um, done a couple of projects in Australia this year, Right. And that kind of doing that, I think, made us realise that we maybe have more of a reach than we are aware of initially. Or yeah, it seems to me that artists-run spaces now are working in a far more internet international context than they maybe were, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think initially, at least with Test Trip 20 years ago in, 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 in Auckland, there was a sense, uh, as naive or as a flimsy conceit as it was, that the artist-run space was somehow outside of the art world. They now yeah. kind of feel a little bit more like an essential rung on the ladder. Um, I mean, where do you guys see yourselves in the art ecology, as it were? Yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of comment. I guess because of our identity being sort of between a dealer model and an artist-run space, we perhaps sit in a strange place in relation to other galleries in Auckland. It might sometimes be a slightly antagonistic place or a relationship towards other artist-run spaces, huh. or that might be the way we're perceived. I mean, like, like I've kind of said, we're, we're interested in collapsing those boundaries, and for us, it doesn't make sense to think of a space or an artist-run space as not in a relationship with commercial spaces or large public institutions. This brings us back to, to, to some exhibitions that you've curated outside of Gloria Night. So you curated an exhibition, Campaign Furniture, at, mm-hmm. at Dunedin Public Art Gallery um, that to us looked quite different to a lot else that's seen at that public gallery and, yeah. and featured a lot of Gloria Night artists. And in parallel, you had a show, I think, at uh, Michael Letts mm-hmm. as a dealer gallery every day, Backwash. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that project and what you were trying to do by crossing these boundaries? The show was sort of a culmination of my curatorial internship at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. While I was at the gallery there, I became quite interested in in the decorative arts collection, which uh, the gallery has, which is, I guess, quite a strange collection for an art gallery to have. It's more of a museum collection, perhaps. Absolutely, yes. So I, I asked this group of artists to make work in response to this decorative arts collection and various ideas around the idea of the decorative arts in relationship to contemporary art or how to think through the decorative arts from the 
contemporary art perspective, and maybe that's indicative of my interest in working with different types of collections and working outside of maybe what is tr- traditional contemporary art practice. How did that relate to the, um, the, the Michael Laird exhibition, Everyday Backwash? A friend of mine was organising a small series of shows in the project room at Michael's and he asked me if I'd be interested in creating something and this was sort of at the time of working on campaign furniture in Dunedin so we decided that it would be nice to have a kind of a sister show or an Auckland iteration of the show partially just for practicality so the artists that we worked that I worked with in Dunedin created uh, some new work and some sort of versions of the, the objects and or the work in the Dunedin show and yeah, represented it in this other sort of context. So yeah, it was nice to present kind of a vision of it in Auckland. Do you think the Gloria Knight models kind of changed things in Auckland in any way, Henry, without, you know, being kind of <laughs> egotistical about it? I mean, are we are, are artist-run spaces going to continue in the same ilk or, or are they like Gloria Knight going to continue to sort of meld into new forms? I think Gloria Knight has been really different for sort of the artist-run space landscape in Auckland. But I don't know if um, it has encouraged other spaces to do similar things or even to do different things. Other artist-run spaces have formed since Gloria Knight, and I think, if anything, many of them resemble a traditional artist-run space rather than perhaps a different model. I don't know. I'm happy, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for Gloria Knight to kind of retain its uniqueness. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it's seen in, in, in retrospect and in the future. And um, good luck to you, Henry, with all your cura- curation, curatorial work and, and uh, for, for everyone there at Gloria Knight. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And that's Circuit Cast for this month. This pod was brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand with music by Orchestra of Spheres. You can catch us on SoundCloud, iTunes or at circuit.org.nz. We're back next month. See you then.